anything that you're going to mess up on or anything that you don't want in the podcast, just let me know and I'll just edit it out. So I can curse as much as I want and you'll just edit it. <laughs> I'll edit everything out. I'll just put a bunch of uh, those, uh, those beep sounds. This whole podcast is going to sound like Moore's code. Just beep, 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 beep. Hey guys, it's Colby Huth. Let me hear you scream. The summer camp director at Camp Joye. Camp Joye. To try out the Aroma of Christ podcast. 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 Brand new banger. The Aroma of Christ. It's called Aroma of Christ. What's up, guys? Welcome to Rome of Christ podcast. I am your host, Dalton Rhodes. Uh, this week, no Marcus or Gabe. They're out doing their own things with summer camp and other type of missionary work um, or ministry work. So they're not going to be here. But I am with a very close friend of mine from church. His name is Chase. And Chase is going to talk to us about apologetics. This is an apologetics episode. Chase, would you care to just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started and kind of give an introduction to what apologetics is? Well, uh, my name's Chase Bishop. I'm from Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, like you said, went to uh, Western Carolina University. I'm glad you consider me a close friend. Uh, that means a lot. It also does make me sad that I'm stuck with you. I don't have any of your, don't have any of your close podcast mates. Makes me sad. <laughs> We might have you on again in sometime in the future, depending on how good you do. Assuming I don't mess this up too bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm a chemist. I work at pharmaceutical manufacturing company. I actually went to school to get my chemistry degree, and I'll be working on my uh, master's degree in uh, chemistry here in a bit. Or next semester, I'll start uh, working on my master's in chemistry. And one of the things that I really love, because I'm a science guy, I'm a nerd, is I love to have a reason for why things are. That's mm. kind of the ethos of science in and of itself is figuring out how things tick, figuring out, asking those big questions. Why is it this way? Why? Just the big question, why? Mm -hmm. And that is what apologetics, uh, apologetic, well, that's what apologetics seeks to answer when it comes to these big questions about God, uh, the universe, everything. And one of the things, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which is actually a legal term, which means to make a defense, usually in writing or in a speech. Kind of like, imagine a lawyer giving a defense to his client, showing why their client was innocent or showing why their case is the best case in a, in a courtroom. That's where we get the word apologia, which it means to make a defense. And apologetics is making a defense of the Christian faith, making a defense of answering, why do we believe that God exists? Why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And then we are able to make a defense of those claims. Hmm. So you're not, you're not very uh, satisfied with just this whole blind faith kind of thing. You want, well, you want real legitimate answers and reasons for why Christianity exists. Oh, uh, I would argue blind faith really isn't that biblical. Um, if you look in the New Testament, whenever Paul is talking to these people, or um, I believe he's talking to Timothy, he says you have to make a defense of your faith to give them an explanation of the joy that you feel, mm -hmm. he does the say joy that. that you're showing them. Uh, that's actually the, one of the main reasons for apologetics is because it's biblical to make a defense of your faith, to say that I'm just going to go off of blind faith well, our God is okay with asking the big questions because he's the big answer. Mm -hmm. So I feel, like, I feel like a lot of people, I feel like some people are almost like scared to kind of question God. Oh, yes. like, like some, some Christians are like, oh my gosh, like if, if I start questioning stuff, then that kind of makes me a bad Christian. That kind of makes me, you know, uh, this kind of shows a lack of faith in God's eyes. But one thing that I love looking at is where Timothy in the Bible, you know, everyone, no, Thomas, everyone calls him doubting Thomas. Because whenever Jesus rose from the dead, he was like, I'm not going to believe that Jesus, this guy that I spent three years with, actually rose from the dead until I actually, didn't he say, like, kind of put my hand through his yeah, Until I touch his, his wounds. And, yes. And here's the thing that I love about that story is that when Jesus shows up, he doesn't yell at Thomas and say, I can't believe you doubted me. I can't believe you. Mm -hmm. He held out his hands and he, and he said, look for yourself. And mm -hmm. God allows us to ask these big questions and for us to say, I need a big reason to believe why 
God exists. I need a big reason to understand why Jesus, or if Jesus rose from the dead. And God isn't afraid of those big questions because he gives us a big answer. Before we get started, I do want to give a little bit of a plug to uh, Ratio Christi. Um, Ratio Christi is a Christian apologetics club on a whole bunch of college campuses, of which I'm the I'm the club president at a at Western. So just wanting to give that get that out there. If you're at Western, come to uh, Ratio Christi um, Christian apologetics and the stuff we're going to be talking about now. That's the stuff we talk about. It's pretty cool. Heck yeah! All right, well let's jump right into it. What All is right. the what is the first piece of evidence that you're going to share with us for the legitimacy of the Bible? Well. If you're going for the legitimacy of the Bible, that's a whole that's a whole different uh, can of worms. Because okay. then um, I'm just going to give my top apologetics arguments for the existence of God. Okay. So the first big argument that is the most compelling to me as a scientist is what's known as the fine tuning argument. The fine tuning argument says that the odds of life existing on Earth it is so finely tuned and is on such a razor's edge of being life permitting that it is only possible through an intelligence, that being God. I'll give you a few examples of fine tuning in the universe. After the moment of creation, what some people would call the Big Bang, the moment of creation, if gravity had been only slightly stronger, the universe would have collapsed in on itself. If it had only been slightly infinitesimally weaker, no stars wouldn't have been able to have formed, no universe, no life. It is on a razor's edge so thin that it is almost a, it is a statistical impossibility that happens just by chance. For example, if the earth was 5% closer to the sun, then the greenhouse effect would raise the temperature of the earth to over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. It'd look like Venus. Can't there's no life on Venus. You can't have life on Venus. If we were only 1% farther from the sun, you'd have a global and continual ice age having something similar to Mars. Also, Earth's size, if we were larger, our Earth, our, our core would be way too hot. It would increase volcanic activity. It would increase greenhouse gas production, and you end up with another Venus-like planet. But if we were only slightly small, the weaker gravity would allow our atmosphere to be stripped away by solar winds and make Earth like Mars. We're able to look to our stellar counterparts, look at Mars and Venus and see well, what Earth could have been had it not been in this precise zone, what's, what uh, uh, astronomers call the Goldilocks zone, meaning not too hot, not too cold. And whenever you look at how many of these parameters are set, in my mind, it can only lead to the conclusion there was an intelligence behind this. And to have an intelligence behind the universe itself, all of the parameters of the universe, you have to have a being that is one, intelligent, but two, large enough and beyond time to be able to affect the creation of the universe itself in such a manner that it is life-bearing. What being of infinite power beyond time and is intelligent do we know of or that we would view as God? And that's, that's not even touching any Bible. Mm -hmm. That's looking just at the scientific facts, seeing how finely tuned our universe is. So, so what do you think the chances are of our entire universe well, and everything in it being made by no creator, by no intelligent designer, that it all just came on its own means throughout billions of years. Well, there's actually, in 1986, there was uh, these researchers named J.D. Uh, Barrow and F.J. Tipler. And what they did is they came up with the anthropic cosmological principle. And what this is, is they essentially had a very long list of all these Goldilocks zone examples and attributes of which the universe and all these constants would have to fall into these narrow ranges of, of uh, narrow ranges for it to fall into for life to exist in the universe. And their odds of things being just right, a conservative estimate, mind you, of things being just right for life to exist is one in 10 to the 250th power. That, wow. is, that, is a, that is a 10 with 250 zeros afterwards. <laughs> to give an idea of how big that number is, statisticians consider anything that's one in 10 to the 50th to be a statistical impossibility, not an improbability, an impossibility. Mm. Here's another and then, thing. And then what did you say the uh, statistic for 
for the universe coming by itself was one in 10 to the 250. If that is a ten, one in 10 with 250 zeros after it. Um, imagine that God said to you, you're in, you're in this big cosmic bingo. And God says, okay, you have to pick out one specific atom out of all the atoms in the universe. You've got to pick out one specific atom. You have to pick this one specific atom. The odds of you picking that one specific atom is one in 10 to the 80th. You're still orders and orders of magnitude away from having the impossibility of life existing on earth in the first place. The odds of winning the mega millions jackpot is one in 302 million. So even if you won the mega millions jackpot six times in a row, it still is improbable. It's, you're, no, you're still not as improbable as life existing on earth based on the anthropic uh, or the anthropic cosmological principle. And here's the cool thing. If someone won the mega millions jackpot six times in a row, what would that tell you? Uh, that would tell me that uh, maybe they're finding a way to cheat. I don't know. That's, that's pretty uh, unlikely. It's rigged. You'd it's know rigged. it was rigged. Mm -hmm. In other words, the odds of all this stuff happening, it had to have been rigged. Another word for rigged had to have been designed yes the odds of this happening is nearly impossible it had to have been designed or rigged in some way to allow life to exist and there's only one option on who could have designed and allowed life to exist on earth or life to exist in the universe at large not even looking at earth and one of the things people will say is um well there's just an infinite number of universes and we're just the lucky one that had all of these had all of these things line up well, do you know how much faith it takes to believe that there's an infinite number of universes out there? You're uh -huh. looking at more blind. You're looking at more blind faith right there than I have faith for. Mm -hmm. It takes more blind faith to believe in evolution than it does in Christianity. And I feel like a lot of people just kind of look at evolution as being the right answer and kind of seeing Christians as being silly because a lot of smart scientists say that it's fact and. I feel like a lot of people don't go farther than that. They don't actually look into it themselves. They say, this smart person said that it's a fact. This smart, this smart person said that being a Christian is stupid. So I agree with the smart person. Well, si science came from Christianity. Uh, largely, science came from Christianity. The idea that our universe is knowable and it comes from an intelligence. Therefore, we can study the intelligence of God through the study of his creation. That's that's the ethos of science. And where science came from in the um, in the Renaissance and then later on, some of the greatest scientists of all time, Sir Isaac Newton, Leiden, uh, Louis Pasteur, all of these scientists were Christians. Gregor Mendel, the one, father of uh, modern uh, father of genetics, he was a or he was a monk. Christianity and science go hand in hand. I, I, I described this with one of my friends the other day that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. How would, if you were set, let's imagine you're God and you're asked to describe or show someone how you created the universe, say Moses, how would Moses be able to describe the big bang? If not, let there be light. Mm -hmm. The way the Bible describes the creation of the universe and the creation of the earth is really similar to the big bang theory. I mean, it's, it's oh, yeah. almost it's almost the same. Like I'm like right here, I got it pulled up. Uh, the Big Bang theory, in simple terms, is the idea that the universe began at just a single point, then expanded and stretched to grow as large as it is right now. And basically, that at one point you had nothing, and bam, you just had the universe. Like it, bam, like everything was kind of put there. And then if you look at the uh, at the creation account, it's, it's, it's saying the same thing. Basically, the creation account says there was nothing. Like there, there was absolutely nothing. And then all of a sudden, God was like, let there be stuff. And yep. then stuff was created everywhere. In the time where a lot of weird theories were going on about our world and that it was, you know, flat, um, some cultures believed that our world was being held up by uh, some kind of creature. Um, a big turtle. Yeah, a big turtle. But... Like the Bible, like never once, this ancient book, never once does it fail at being true as to what we know now. Um, one of the verses in Job, in the book of Job, which is in the, New, in the Old Testament, very, very old document, it says that God 
suspends the earth over nothing, that the earth is suspended over nothing. And at that time, a lot of cultures were saying all these other theories, but we know now that the earth is suspended over nothing. There's, there's nothing that is, that is, you know, standing on, it's just in space floating. So I just think that's interesting that we have this ancient document that was written over by over 40 different authors on four different continents throughout thousands of years. So a lot of these people had no way of communicating with one another or reading the previous text, but it all tells one story and it all lines up with the way we know the universe works. And that's before they had telescopes. That's before yeah. they had they, they had all these ways of knowing for sure. And so that must mean that they had some kind of insight from the creator himself, from some kind of being that knows everything that 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 actually sees the way the universe works and that they got that insight from him oh yeah the book of job i i love the end of the book of job because you see a little bit of god's sarcasm of saying oh you you know it all big guy let me show you what you don't know and then <laughs> telling him all the things he doesn't know and a lot mm -hmm. of these things like uh geysers in the deep hydrothermal vents weren't weren't revealed until the early 20 or early 20th century and here they're described in the book of Job by God being, oh, just saying, okay, big guy, let me tell you what you don't know. And I love seeing that personal aspect of God right then. And like you were talking about all of these different theories that ultimately Christianity had right all along. Um, that brings me to my next point, which or the next argument, which is known as the Kalam's cosmological argument. The okay. Kalam's oh, oh, but before you go there, so, so your first argument, just to wrap it up, it was uh basically the legitimacy of the universe having a creator am i correct that that, there, fine, that there's, the there's fine, not really yeah go ahead the fine tuning of the universe and how the universe is designed points towards an intelligent cosmic designer that being god gotcha so that was the first point but now we are going to the second point what is your second argument um the second most i mean they're all they're all persuasive the second most persuasive argument that for the existence of God is known as the Kalam's cosmological argument. The Kalam's cosmological argument uh, actually came from a Muslim scholar in, I believe, the early 1000s, and it goes as follows. Anything that comes into existence has a cause. The universe came into existence, therefore it had a cause. So by that line of reasoning, if the universe has a cause, what could cause the universe? You would have to have something that does not come into existence, that pre-existed the universe and did not necessitate having to come into a being, something that was eternal, and then ultimately would have the insight, the power, and the intelligence to create, to cause the universe to come into existence. One of the things that atheists and philosophers, whenever they heard the Kalam's cosmological argument, they said, oh, well, you don't even need this argument. This argument is bupkis because the universe has always existed. The universe is eternal. You don't need a cause to the universe because the universe didn't have a cause. It's just always existed. We're just this speck of rock floating in the universe, a little cosmic accident. Something happened in the 1920s by a man by the name of Edwin Hubble. You might know him from a telescope that's named after him, the, mm -hmm. Edwin, or the Hubble telescope. Edwin Hubble was staring at the stars and staring at these galaxies from the ground and realized that over time, through the years he'd been peering at these stars and at these galaxies, they were moving away. They were getting farther and farther apart. He looked at this and realized the universe was expanding. And by realizing that the universe was expanding, you can't exactly have something that's stationary expand away from a single point without having first come from that single point. What Edwin Hubble had discovered and subsequent researchers afterwards, was that the universe had a beginning, that the Christians were right all along, that the universe had a beginning. And because it had a beginning, it must have had a cause. Then the Kalam's cosmological argument comes back into play, saying the universe did come into existence and therefore required a cause. I can't think of anything that has, there's no thing that just comes into existence by its own necessity. Like a, a, a toaster doesn't just pop up in your bedroom uh, just because it, if a toaster popped up into my bedroom, I'd know, okay, someone put it there. Mm -hmm. Something that came into existence or came into being had a cause. So what modern science 
told us was that the universe had a beginning and we're able to peer back at to the very moment of that beginning, what people would call the Big Bang, that beginning of the universe. And we know that there's a beginning of the universe scientifically and from all modern astronomy. And then we're able to say, if the universe came into existence, it must have had a cause. And therefore, that cause could only have been something that is beyond space, beyond time, uncaused and intelligent enough to put the universe in motion, that being God. Mm. So we're basically uh, making a really good case for the universe having a creator. It seems like there's not really any chance, logically, that the universe came on its own accord, which is what a lot of people believe. But at some point during this podcast, I want to get into why God, there's so many religions out there. Why, if there was a creator, does it have to be the God of the Bible? Why does it, Why can't it be any other God that any other people on the earth follow? Why can't it be just a God that we might not even know of? I am so glad you brought up that point. And I think whenever we go to our next segment, I am going to be happy to answer that. All right. So that was topic number two. And uh, so now, Chase, what is the third topic? Well, if you go by just those first two topics, you'll end up in a, uh, a camp of thinking known as theism, meaning that uh, like atheism means they believe there is no God. Theism means I believe there is a God, but you dr you stop there. Yeah. They, say, just don't know, they just don't know which one it is. It could be yeah, anybody. Yeah. There's a God out there. He's, he created the universe. I don't know him personally. He's out there. Uh, some people have compared it to a, a, a watchmaker, someone who sets a, a machine into motion and just lets it, lets it go on. Well, how do that, theism won't get you into heaven uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and when it comes to apologetics uh it's really great to go into these big questions and say how do i know god exists that's the biggest question of all and to say how do i know god exists and you can hammer so much on that but here's the thing when it comes to telling people about apologetics and to telling them why you believe what you believe we want to help them become Christians, not just theists. We want to help them take that step farther. We've shown as of now, just from those first two arguments, that there is a God, that that God created the universe and is intelligent and created the universe for a purpose of life coming about. Well, how would this God interact with his creation? Well, we see throughout the Old Testament how God interacts with his creation through the law and through judges and through these other people until ultimately, once that law has been imprinted on those people's heart, he would come into the world and in an incarnate being, fully God, fully man, in the man of Jesus of Nazareth, to be the perfect sacrifice and atone for the sins of the world, a world that had completely shunned him. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that these perfect God came to his or came to his creation that was imperfect and through his reconciliation allowed them to have connection and communion with him well that's always that's a fun story but how do we know jesus is who he says he is what's to say that jesus wasn't some random crazy guy in the middle east who said i'm the messiah come worship me and then somehow he grabbed a following mm -hmm. well it, it kind of begs the question i mean how on earth would a first century, uh, first century carpenter from a, a uh, backwoods town in Galilee completely turn the world upside down to where a third of, actually, no, not just a third of the world is Christian, but all of, all of Islam affirms that Jesus existed, and a whole lot of other religions say that Jesus existed. And Why? also, they're not the only ones that say that Jesus existed. Any reputable historian that's to be taken seriously, they all agree. Like all these historians, not even Christian historians, just, just historians, they all agree that there was a man named Jesus, and he did actually live on this earth, and he did live in, the, in that time, and uh, that he was real, that Jesus was, in fact, a real historical person, that there's no debate about that. That is, that is fact. And he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. All of the secular resources and all of the other religions beside Christianity stop at that point, except, except for Islam. Islam doesn't believe Jesus was crucified. Um, but the life and death of Jesus is one of the most certifiable historical facts 
in ancient history and history writ large. It, comparing Jesus to any other historical figure, Julius Caesar, Plato, Alexander the Great, we have more information about Jesus's life, his ministry, and who he was and the things that he said, taught, and what his followers said and taught than any other ancient historical person, bar none. And anyone who tries to tell you, well, Jesus just never existed. He was a mythological character. One, disciples of a mythological character aren't going to die just because of something they know is a lie. I'm not going to go out into the streets of uh, New York and get killed in the name of Spider-Man. Like, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And we're able to look at all of this history and say, Jesus existed. And people say, okay, Jesus existed. He was crucified. But what's the one event? The one event that proved that Jesus is who he says he was, that this person who was from a backwater town in Israel was the incarnate son of God. How would you prove that to those people? Well, I can tell you one thing. Most people don't come back from the dead after they've been crucified. The Romans were very good at killing people. Mm -hmm. And through Jesus's resurrection, he was able to prove that he was who he said he was and set the world completely upside down so that Christianity, which was a small sect of religious thought, took over the world. And that, that that's a fun that's a fun thought. But then I, I hear a lot of I hear a lot of people say in the back of their mind, well, what why in the world should we believe that Jesus was was uh, he rose from the dead? There's there's of course evidence that you can't really argue with that he lived and that he was that he was on this earth. He was real. But why do we say he rose from the dead? Well, the evidence that you that you referenced, you said the evidence that we know Jesus was alive and real, those same evidences, uh, most historians will look at the gospel accounts as historical documents. They're going to view them not as inspired word of God. Um, however, Christians view, view it that way. They're going to look at it as, okay, this is strictly a historical document. Let's look at this and view it for what it is, trying to take out any biases from it. And they'll still get the exact same conclusion from reading those as historical document that this person lived this person died via crucifixion and he was viewed by a lot of people who went to their deaths believing that jesus christ was risen from the dead and those same documents that say jesus existed also say jesus rose from the dead granted there are and what's even crazier is that they're the the people who deny that Jesus rose from the dead, didn't just say, oh, well, he died and he's in the tomb down the street. They said, oh, no, 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 no. Um, the followers stole the body. Yeah, um, because uh, the, the religious leaders got scared. They were like, oh my gosh, if this gets out that there's an empty tomb, then people are going to think that he really was the son of God. So we need to make up this lie so people don't get mad at us, the religious leaders. And turn on us we make up this lie that his disciples stole the body and made it look like he uh, he was divine and rose from the dead if, if you were going to show everybody in this community because it was a very small community where christianity arose if you were to show all these people hey jesus didn't rise from the dead his body's right there it smells bad it's in the tomb over there you would have done it you would have produced the body however mm -hmm. they said no the followers stole the body or people, uh, some people say they just went to the wrong tomb. Are you really telling me that these <laughs> people who saw him go into this tomb and buried him, that they were like somehow lost their sense of direction, went to the wrong tomb, saw it was empty. And they're like, wow, that must mean he rose from the dead. And therefore, I'm going to spend the next 40 years under persecution and threat of death only to be martyred just because I went to the wrong tomb. Oh, yeah. People don't understand that. The disciples going out in the streets and preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, there was no glory for them. I mean, if you read the Bible, like they were heavily beaten, persecuted, like they were like they were whipped, flogged. Even Paul, they, he suffered. I mean, it says in the Bible, there were times where like the people in the town got so angry at what he was preaching that one time they stoned him and drug him out of the town because they thought he was dead. But Paul wasn't dead. He was knocked out yeah. and he got up and he left. But these these uh, these disciples, historically, they said all this and they kept getting beaten. There was no glory. There, there was nothing to get out of it, of, of going on with, along with a lie. Oh, yeah. They had to have been really passionate and truly believed what they did to, in order to go through this much pain. The classic apologetics line is that you don't die for a lie. 
And I can't think of any other circumstance in which these people who were to gain nothing, all of these disciples of Jesus, these apostles, all of them except one, according to church tradition, died via martyrdom in very gruesome ways. Mm -hmm. The only person who didn't die via martyrdom was John, who eventually wrote Revelation after enduring his exile. Yeah, he didn't get killed, but he, well, we think we you know, didn't I mean, get killed, but he well, did get sent away on an, an, on an island by himself and to live out the rest of his days well, in isolation. He, you know why he was sent to that island in isolation, according to church tradition? People say, oh, well, he didn't die via martyrdom. Well, it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, they, <laughs> they, uh, they had poured him in, or they had cut, or put him into a pot of boiling oil and covered, boiling, covered him with boiling oil. And he did not hurt him, but or according to tradition, it did not hurt him, but he felt all the pain. So imagine this guy was burned in boiling oil and then he mm. didn't die. And they're like, crap, we can't get rid of this guy. You know what? Throw him on an island. <laughs> uh, and people say, oh, he got off scot-free. Not really. You don't die for a lie. And yeah, that's one of the biggest apologetic arguments is you can, if you can show someone one, that there is a God. You can show them scientifically that there is a God. You can turn their mind towards believing that there is a God. But we're not after just changing someone's mind. We're after changing someone's heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you can prove to that person that Jesus existed, he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, that raises a lot of implications, and that raises the stakes a lot. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, that means he said who he who, he is who he says he was mm -hmm. and therefore is the judge of the world and is the savior of the world and, and we're, no go ahead um yeah go ahead I, go ahead I, I was done right there and i don't think a, a lot of people i feel like might not understand the gravity of if jesus is real if christianity is real if jesus is real and if Christianity is real, then everything the Bible says is real. And that means that there is a hell and there is an afterlife and there is an eternity. And um, I feel like there's like, if Jesus is real and if Christianity is real, there's a certain accountability that people have that they didn't have before. And I honestly, personally, I think that the evidence for God is overwhelming. And I think the reason why we don't teach it as being fact like it should be is because of that accountability like if, if it's real then that means that a lot of people have to change the way that they live and people don't like that one of my favorite quotes is uh from arthur c clark and he has a quote about this says there are two pos two possibilities exist either we are alone in the universe or we are not both are equally terrifying <laughs> yeah I've, I've i've seen that i'm like whoa that is that is kind of scary <laughs> and i i think you apply this to god there, it's a very terrifying possibility when you recognize that God exists. That is a very terrifying thing to think about. But also the thought of God doesn't exist. That is also that I'd say that's e that's even more terrifying because there's no life after this. There's no purpose to this life. There's nothing mm -hmm. beyond the physical that we feel. And even the physical that we feel is just a manifestation of chemicals in our brain. Who's to say we're not just sitting in a vat of chemicals being fed uh, fed what we need to through tubes just to say we're not in a simulation uh whenever you recognize that the implications of that they're not being a god are terrifying i'd say are even more terrifying than the implications that there is a god and the, but the evidence that there is a god i would argue is far more, more strong that there isn't a god and i have good news for the person who says i believe that there is a god i'm terrified and i can say guess what that god who you were terrified of loves you beyond belief mm -hmm. that this God who you were terrified of, who created you or who created you, created this universe is a personal God who wants to have a personal relationship for, uh, with you. And that God came to earth through Jesus Christ, died on a cross on your behalf so that you would not face that judgment until ultimately you can or so ultimately you can have that relationship with him so far we've kind of covered that the universe uh it's very very 
illogical to think that it was created on its own, that there was a creator and there was historically a Jesus and that historically there were a lot of people that genuinely, genuinely, genuinely with all their heart believed that Jesus rose from the dead enough to get persecuted and punished for the rest of their life claiming this belief. So we're on a pretty good track right now. So, um, oh yes. Yeah. And providing evidence for this stuff. Um, when it comes to whether Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth existed and whether Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, I know I hear people say all the time, say, I just wish there was physical evidence. It's just, uh, if there was a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross or actually no him crucified, then I would believe. Well, as a matter of fact, some believe there is. Are you about to talk about the my favorite thing ever? <laughs> my favorite piece of evidence ever? The okay. shroud? The Shroud of Turin. Oh my this, gosh. I love yeah. this. <laughs> I could talk for days about this. So the Shroud of Turin is a roughly a 14-foot long piece of cloth that bears the image of a crucified man. This mm -hmm. crucified man has nail holes in his wrists and on his ankles and also has scars above his head where something sharp would have pierced his scalp around the temple, possibly a crown of thorns, so to speak, and also has a stab wound in the right side. So, it, so it's basically, like you said, it's a 14-foot cloth, like 14-foot long, basically blanket almost, like a big sheet. And like you said, it's, it bears an image of a man. And it's funny because all the wounds, we're going to get into it, but all the wounds on this on this man that is imprinted onto the sheet has the exact same unique wounds that the Bible says Jesus Christ did. Oh, yes. And even and there are passages, uh, in, I believe, at least two Gospels that talk about putting Jesus in a burial shroud, that there was a cloth that they would have put him in, and that would have been traditional to... Uh, wrap someone in a cloth and then put them in that tomb and this image of this crucified man one of one of the most fascinating things to me is that when you think of jesus crucified on a cross um what do you think of where where would those nails be going in most people would think in their hands in the palms well you know what happens if you do that the body falls off you don't have a, you don't have a strong enough tendons and everything to hold everything in there if you were to hold someone on a cross or try to hold someone on a cross, you would nail them in the wrists. And science didn't know this until many, many years after the Shroud of Turin was discovered. People, people used to actually, people would dismiss the Shroud of Turin saying it wasn't the legitimate burial shroud of Jesus because the nails worked through the hands. It wasn't until later, one, um, the word hand also can refer to both the, I, this is why I wish I had the camera, uh, the hand part, like the digits and everything, but also extending into the forearm, into the wrist. Uh, in Greek and Aramaic, all these different languages would view the hand as being part of, or the wrist as being part of the hand. And these wounds were there. Um, what people will say about the Shroud of Turin is that, well, it only shows up in the historical record about the 1300s. And if it shows up in the 1300s, it was just some really good fake that a, uh, middle ages person middle ages artist created if you're a middle age artist trying to fool the entire world that you just that you have the burial shroud of jesus where would you put these nail marks probably in the you'd hands in the like hand. put the, yeah you put them in the palm of the hands there's no way you'd be putting them in the wrist moreover the shroud of turin carries all these blood marks and markings of someone who was crucified in a manner very similar to jesus but how on earth would you get this image onto a a piece of cloth like that? What well, they've been able to show what they've been able to show is that it's not paint, it's not pigment, it's a singe, it's a burn. It's almost yeah. like an X-ray radiation. You can actually see on the hands, uh, the hands of the Shroud of Turin. I've always wondered. I was like, why do the hands look so weird? This has got to be some kind of fake because the hands look weird. It's because the fingers are so long and they look. You look at them. They look like an x-ray of a hand. You can see x-ray characteristics of the hands and of the mouth and of teeth. You can actually see teeth through it. Mm -hmm. You would have to have a sudden burst of, of radiation that would cause this singe, a very, 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 very thin layer of singe along this cloth to allow 
these characteristics to be pulled through into the cloth like an image. Well, how on earth is a 1300s Middle Ages artist going to create a singe on a cloth using x-ray characteristics that he wouldn't know about? And that raises the question of, okay, this thing might be legit because how, how else would you get a imprinted image via radiation of a crucified man if not through a sudden burst of energy, just as we talked about, let there be light as being a burst of energy, the birth of the universe, a burst of energy whenever Jesus was resurrected from the dead that would imprint his image onto a piece of cloth bearing his scars and his blood until ultimately people could see it. Well, the biggest objection people, or go ahead, you were about to say something. Oh yeah, no. Well, I don't know what you're about to go in. I was I was about to go in uh, kind of more of the scientific evidence of, uh, of, of this being like what, what science had to say about about this thing and you kind of went over some of them but i just want to point out that this shroud is not just you know just some kind of artifact that some people kind of know about it's like um it's kind of like uh almost real niche where not many people know about it no this is actually the most studied historical item ever and that is that's a fact like this is the most studied the most researched the most um like most tests have been done on this one historical artifact than any other historical artifact ever. And, you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of claims at first, like you said, it was a painting. This was just a painting of a man. So somebody, somebody painted this. Well, scientists have actually tested the strands, a lot of the strands inside of the shroud. And like you said, they found no evidence of any sort of paints or anything like that what they found are you know, the blood's real they found that all the blood on it is real they found um they found little little fragments of dirt of the same kind of dirt that was in jerusalem the same place that jesus was said to be crucified they found actual like pieces of, of uh like skin that they, they, they tested and they, they said like this is real skin so what they know what science knows is that that what we have is a real image of a real man with real wounds. And so the question is, who is this man? And first of all, I would like to point out that, like I said before, this man, and look, look it up for yourself, look at the images of it. This man had very, very unique wounds that were not common at all for crucifixion, for the way Romans would crucify people. For one, he this man had marks on his head on his scalp he had incisions on his scalp he had blood coming down from his head um and you know of course christians believe that this was the crown of thorns like like you had to have had something on his head that stabbed his scalp that there's no other recorded document in history where any other man had a scalp pierced the way that was before crucifixion same thing with how many whip marks and cuts all over this man's body uh was abnormal and this is crazy to me. The stab wound in the rib. This man had a stab wound in the rib, and that was very uncommon for crucifixion because what they would do is crucifixion was meant to be excruciating. That's actually where the where the word excruciating came from was from crucifixion, uh, where they were supposed to leave you up there for for days. It was a slow and agonizing death where they left you up there and you died of suffocation. And so you didn't really have stab wounds like that, that ended a man's life. And especially, and even if they were wanting to just kill them, this, it's been long enough. They said they've been on this cross long enough. We're just going to kill them. What they would do, they were smart. They would break their knees. So that way their body, they, they couldn't hold themselves up with their knees and they would suffocate. It was unheard of to stab one someone in the side. So like I said, what we have is an image of a man who is, has the same unique uh, wounds as Jesus, the, the, the same wounds that a crown of thorns would have been, the same uh, pierce in the side that, uh, that Jesus was said to have, all the cuts and, the, and being crucified. And he's about, he looks about the same age that Jesus was said to have been crucified at. Um, but it's wild that it's just like, who was this man? And the oh, only yeah, logical yeah. thing I can think of is Jesus. Well, it gets even crazier. Um, that stab wound on the side, you notice uh, looking at that stain, there's blood, but there's also another substance. It's a little bit clearer than that substance. Yeah. What that is, 
is that that is uh, pericardial fluid. That is where if someone has been dead for a while, the blood and the water will separate in that pericardial sac where they would have stabbed Jesus, trying to stab him into the heart to make sure he's dead. Well, we see accounts in the Bible where they said whenever he was stabbed in the side, that the blood and the water flowed out. And we can see that that corroborating evidence is seen on the shroud itself, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Not to even mention, like you were talking about the dirt and everything that's on it. We also have pollen that goes back to Jerusalem on that on that cloth. But I, I hate to be I hate always hate or you have to play devil's advocate when it comes to these things. Well, skeptics, they look at this cloth and they're like, well, that's a pretty cool, that's a pretty cool thing. But is it legit? Well, in the 19, I believe it was the 1980s or it was the 1970s, they decided that they were going to test it. They were going to carbon date this piece of cloth. And they carbon tested this piece of cloth. They carbon tested a small piece of it in the corner and it came back and it said, this cloth is from the 1300s. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of was like, okay, well, yep. it's, it's not real. It's not yep. real. This thing had it, to have been 2000 years old if it was real. Oh, yes. And so people, so the scientists, they, they washed their hands of it and they said, well, another job well done. Let's go on. And people, people, a lot of people crawled, cried foul after that. They're like, hold on. Where you collected the sample was in a repaired area on the corner. Mm -hmm. Two, in your sample that you gave to these labs, you had a piece of cloth that was 2,000 years old and you had a piece of the Shroud of Turin. They had different stitch patterns and it would be easily distinguishable to those researchers which, uh, which stitch pattern was which, which came from the Shroud and which didn't. Mm -hmm. so it was, it was a very It was a very controversial part of the Shroud that they tested. And by the way, I was on the same boat as you whenever I first heard about this. Whenever Mike first came and did his sermon about the proof of the Bible, and he talked about the shroud and basically claimed that we have this sheet in existence that has the face and body of Jesus Christ on it, of the Jesus Christ, I was skeptical. I was very skeptical, but I was very intrigued. So I went after he was done and I researched like crazy. And the first thing I researched was proof against it. And I got to tell you, like there's, there's not much at all. And what you stated, the whole like um, carbon dating thing, that's really the only proof against it that I could find in my extended research. And like you said, what they did was they used a very controversial part of the shroud to test. And they should have used a different part of it that was not controversial, but a lot there was a lot of push from people to retest it. So they used other dating methods, and other dating methods, multiple other dating methods, actually pointed it to exactly the time that Jesus died on the cross. So that's kind of the only proof against this thing being being uh, legitimate is is that whole controversial piece of the shroud being used in carbon dating. And I encourage anyone who's listening, seriously, this is the most interesting piece of evidence I've ever heard of for the existence of God. Please research this yourself. Um, I feel like you will get lost in the research about this thing. There's actually a really good documentary that I would recommend. It's called Who Can He Be? It's a question. And it's a, uh, it's a documentary that talks about the Shroud of Turin. I even believe it's on YouTube. It's about 50, uh, 57, about an hour, 57 minutes, about an hour long. And it explains what the Shroud is, the history of the Shroud, and then the evidence is against the Shroud and then dispelling those evidences. The, the worst thing, a, when it comes to apologetics, the worst thing that a Christian can do is to look at someone else's argument and then say, uh-uh, no way. I don't, I don't want to look at that at all. Just shun themselves away from it. Because if you look at someone else's argument and say, okay, well, they're not a Christian. I'm not going to trust anything they say and don't listen to their argument, then one, you've isolated yourself from hearing what they have to say that may challenge your faith, but then strengthen your faith over time as you research it. But also you've isolated yourself from sharing the gospel to that person. Mm -hmm. um, the shroud is, is one of the coolest pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's and so if you're cool. able to show, if you're able to show someone with a literal picture 
a literal picture of Jesus and say, this is the burial shroud of Jesus. How, how the image got on there lends credence to Jesus being resurrected. If, if Jesus was resurrected, then the implications of that are, it changed the course of history. And we've seen that it has changed the course of history. Look at our calendar. We don't look at it and say, uh, it's BCAD. And even though people will say, oh, well, it's actually before Common Era and Common Era. Yeah, when's the Common Era start? I don't yeah. know. One. Where do we set one from? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like like we've, we've made time based around whenever Jesus was, uh, was, was born. And of course, like I said, we know that this man really existed. So we really literally base time around this person that existed. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I don't think that, you know, I think, I think it'd be silly if we base time, the way that we tell time around a man that was just an ordinary man. But I think this is just awesome because people that don't believe will say, make claims like, I will believe if I had this, I will believe if I had that. And a lot of people, like you say, will say like, you know, if there was a picture of Jesus, I believe. Well, it's just like doubting Thomas. He said, if I could just actually touch the wounds of this living man, then I will believe this living man is Jesus. And Jesus' re Jesus's response was, okay, I will provide that proof that you're asking for. And now people, 2,000 years later, people are saying, I, if I just had a picture of Jesus, I would believe. And here we see God saying, you know what? Okay. I will provide that. And <laughs> I think it's wild because like you said earlier, blind faith is, I agree, blind faith is kind of kind of a silly thing to say that you need as a Christian whenever God's lovingly provided so much proof. Oh yeah. And like you said, people will say, if only I had this, then I would, then I would become a Christian. Oftentimes when you press people enough and you say, let's say, let's say I can prove to you all of those things. Would you become a Christian? And a lot of people, if they're being honest, will say no, because mm -hmm. the implication of Jesus existing and being who he said he was, it implies and demands that you change because of it, demands that you repent and you follow him. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to be encountered with. Mm -hmm. so whenever you tell people like when you press people say hey here's all the proof that god exists if i if god showed up right in front of you and said hey i'm here jesus is my son do this they still wouldn't believe or wouldn't become a christian because of other things there um I, I forget the bible verse but it says the fool says in their heart there is no god you can believe that there is a god in your mind you can believe that you can hear all of these apologetic arguments and say, God exists. Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus rose from the dead. But you never fully internalize that, realize the implications of that, and believe that in your heart. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. You can say in your mind, you can be a theist and say, there's a God out there. If you deny that with your heart, you deny that there is God, then you're, you're on the wrong path. And I was thinking about this whenever you said earlier that there's two things to think of about the universe. One of them being that there is no God and one being that there is a God and both are equally terrifying. I think that there is a middle ground that a lot of people find comfort in that's not terrifying. And that's, oh, sure, there is some kind of um, higher power but who's to say who it is? The thing with that belief is that there's zero accountability for anything you do, but there's still the comfort that there is a higher power that might have some influence in your life. And like, there is something out there that is in control. But as soon as you say it's God is that higher power, there's a certain accountability that people will find uncomfortable. They say, well, that means that, you know, if there is God, the, the one that the Bible talks about that's in charge, I have to change this. I have to quit doing this. No, I love doing this. I love doing that. There's So I'm going to say that God is not real. It, it, it must be just something else. 
And that's that's kind of, you know, especially on a college campus, you know, that belief is pretty strong. A lot of people say there's a higher power. We don't know who it is. And a lot of people are like, it's the universe. And like I said, just that's a very comfortable thing to think about, that there's there's a higher power that doesn't care enough about us to have a standard for us to live by. And that's why I think it's popular. Oh, yes, I, I'd 100% agree. If you accept that there is a God, but he's just out there and doesn't have anything personal to do with you, then that's more terrifying than anything I can think of. Because be like, oh, yeah, this God who's out there who has no stake in my life could squash the, the earth like an ant or could squash the earth in his fingers and think nothing of it. But whenever you're presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ saying that there is a higher power, there is God, that God came to earth to die for you. The whole thing of saying that because of the implications of this, I need to change. That is true. But you're not changing on your own power. You're changing through the transformative power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. God didn't give it to give us this imperative to do this alone. He gave us a helper, that being the Holy Spirit, to allow us to fulfill those standards that he gives us. Um, mm-hmm. that, and- that's me no. getting all. I'm get. I'm getting all. I'm getting a little bit uh, preachy, not apologetic. Is that <laughs> no, a word? Good. It's a word now. Uh, apologetic. It could be a word. It should be yeah. a word. Ain't wasn't a word, but people pressed it so much that they added it to the dictionary. So we can do that with apologetic. Well, but we are running out of time. So I think that there is a ton of evidence for the Bible. We kind of went through three to four good pieces of evidence here. We could do a part two. Are you down for a part two at some point, Chase? I'd be down for a part two. We haven't even scratched the surface of a lot of these arguments. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot a lot of the moral arguments, that's going to be a fun one to get into. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever there's a lot of stuff that when you look at the apologetics, if you divorce it from the gospel, you just get discount theism. And like I said with apologetics, we don't want theists. We want to help make Christians. And... Um, I would love to just show how apologetics coupled with the gospel is one of the greatest things that you can do to help someone's unbelief and uh, to help your own belief as well. That like I'm a, I've been a Christian since I was in seventh grade. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at an event my brother held at our church. And I seriously struggled with my faith for a long time because I'm a science guy. I was a science nerd. I spent all my time doing science classes, science fairs, and I began to think, well, what the world thinks that, okay, science and God are incompatible. And I, instead of asking those big questions, I isolated myself from asking those big questions to the point that anytime I was presented with any counterpoint from, say, an atheist perspective, it would throw me for a loop. It wasn't until I was in college that God kind of showed me, like, don't be afraid to ask these questions. Don't be afraid to ask me why this stuff is. Because the enemy is not going to have any qualms with sending all of this stuff your way. You need to make sure that you're able to defend it. Apologia, to make a defense. Defending the faith, not only to other people, but defending it to yourself so that you can combat the enemy. And like uh, Jesus said, whenever he's tempted by the enemy, it is written. The scriptures say, and if you can defend those scriptures, you can defend against the attacks of the of the world and ultimately of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I was a kid, I was at a point where I was kind of questioning if God was real. And I remember being scared to research if there there was proof of the Bible because I was scared there was going to be none. So I held off on it for a while, but finally I worked up the courage to to face that fear and looked up if there was evidence. And I was uh, not disappointed. And even the more I research now, there's uh, I'm not disappointed. So just to kind of end this. I believe that God lovingly provides evidence. He understands that we might struggle with this, with unbelief and get discouraged at the legitimacy of his existence. 
And I believe that because it says it throughout stories in the Bible, how God dealt with certain people who had doubts. Uh, Moses had doubt. Gideon had doubt. Gideon had doubt that it was really the Lord talking to him. And he kept asking for signs and like supernatural signs. And God didn't yell at him. God lovingly said, okay, I will help you with your unbelief by giving you these signs that you're asking for. So I believe that God lovingly gives us the proof of his existence and that we need to not be scared to look into it and be open to looking into it. Amen to that. Amen. So uh, that's the episode. Um, like I said, we'd love to do a part two. If you want a part two, uh, go ahead and comment down if you're interested in this stuff. Uh, Chase, thank you so much for being on this episode. You're and, welcome. And intelligent dude. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, glad to get on here. And uh, like I said, Ratio Christie, look up your local, uh, look up your local uh, one at Ratio Christie local chapter for Ratio Christi at your college campus. Look into starting one if you love apologetics. And if you're at Western Carolina University, uh, come to Ratio Christi. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to help answer those big questions that you have. Heck yeah. All right. Thanks again, Chase. And uh, if you guys haven't already, um, we got a bunch of more episodes out now. So if you're interested in this channel, just keep on binge listening to them. All right. Love you guys. God bless.